What a joyous opportunity we have already had to lift our voices together in collective singing, to praise and adore the name of God as we have done, to encourage ourselves in the ways of most godliness and righteousness. How blessed indeed we have been already to be able to assemble and to gather. And also now to open the Word of God and to be challenged and led by it, to be directed in the pathways of those matters, of course, correct and right in the sight of heaven. As was mentioned earlier during the announcements, we are thankful for the presence of each and every one, and we trust and hope that our service will be uplifting and exciting as we simply worship in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4, verse 24. You may have noted in the bulletin, as well as in the wall to my left, that this morning we'll be giving consideration to a lesson entitled, Going Too Far in Worship, and our basis for text will be that very passage that was just read in our hearing taken from 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. In fact, near the close of that chapter, we recollect a scene, an incident, a set of affairs, if you please, that will be of sufficient greatness that the time will come in the lesson we will revisit that, place it in its context, and extract from it a set of lessons exceedingly meaningful and very of great principle for you and me today. In order to begin, though, along that way of movement in the lesson, perhaps some introductory thoughts, some helpful ideas might at least set our mindset to the direction that we shall consider based on that passage a bit later. Isn't it truly a remarkable thing to give thought to the matter of worship? The very thing in which you and I have gathered today and in that in which you and I now engage, worship. As we are well aware, though, the viewpoints toward worship, as it is seen from the perspective of so many, varies greatly. There are some in our world who loathe worship. They have a deep-seated disdain for it. It is beyond them why anybody would want to invest two or three or four hours a week for that purpose. They see no meaning in it. They see no benefit for them in it. They understand not what purpose there could be for gathering to do what supposedly is called worship. On the other hand, there are others who perhaps are not in that category. They simply have no interest in it. They will meet if they feel like it. More often than not, they don't. They just simply don't have any interest in worship. They seem not to glean anything from it. They simply are not in a position to find that it's something that has a meaningful matter for their life. On the other hand, there are those in another category. Worship does seem to mean something to them. Roughly half the American population, or so we are told, at least every now and then will assemble in one way or another for some kind of worship. Of course, to be recognized in that, there's a large variety of worships. Many different things in many different ways for many different reasons are done, and yet it's called worship. I would submit to you that we should give some question, though, to what does the Bible say about worship? Those knowledgeable of the Scriptures are well aware worship is important to God. He mentions it far too often. He even commands it. It is in that regard I would point you then near the bottom of that slide. Since worship is a commanded thing, and since as the Bible presents it, it's a good thing, the next natural question that would seem worthy to, for you and me to ask would be this. Is it possible to go too far in worship? 
Is it possible to go beyond acceptable limits that God has placed and said, and thus do one or more things in worship that in fact would not be pleasing to God? Is it possible to go too far in worship? I would submit that there are many today who would quickly say, well, surely the answer to that question has to be no. As long as you're excited, sincere, honest, enthusiastic, surely God will accept anything that one would wish to do in worship. Many would have that viewpoint. Our question is, is that the biblical viewpoint? Is it possible to go too far in worship? In fact, the next part of our lesson, the next slide will in fact allow us to frame that discussion. And let's do so in the following way. Let's do so, first of all, carefully affirming the place in which you and I now are, and to do so by building it from the perspective of the Word of God. By definition, worship is simply this, acts of reverence directed to God. The Lord Himself in Matthew 4 verse 10 said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And that is one of the first occurrences in the New Testament of the word worship. And we learn in it that it is exclusively directed to God by nature of its definition. And we learn that the very aspect of the Greek word involves various acts, A-C-T-S. As you give thought to what those acts are, the totality and the exhaustiveness of the New Testament list only five. You and I are blessed with the privilege of singing Ephesians 5 verse 19. We recognize too that by the surrounding of the Lord's table and observing it using the emblems and in the way that God has commanded, that is set forth for us in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 20 and following. We notice that we are commanded to engage in prayer. 1 Timothy 2 verses 8 through 13. We furthermore appreciate the aspect of the opening of the Word of God and being led and taught thereby. We see that in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2. And then in addition to all of them, we give as we have been prospered. A straightforward commandment found in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Those matters thus comprise what God has affirmed and stated with respect to worship. But that now leads us to note this. That list seems so simple. It seems so straightforward, those five items. But as human beings are wont to do, isn't it often the case that questions are raised with respect to one or more of those five elements? May I adjust it and do this? Are we at liberty to modify it and do that? Are we at liberty to alter it and thus do this? That kind of approach is not new. Revisit with me 1 Corinthians 11 and give some thought to the Lord's Supper. Even in the first century, the church in Corinth was in fact abusing the Lord's Supper. They were partaking of it in a selfish way where each person would bring his or her own common meal. They'd bring, if you please, the beans and taters from home and they would actually allow, believe it or not, that to play a part and an element in the Lord's Supper. And thus, while some were gorging out on what they had brought, others were going without and thus were hungry and starving. And Paul rebuked the church in Corinth, this that you claim to be doing is not the Lord's Supper. You may think that it is, 
but you are abusing the very thing that should be directed to a discernment of the Lord's blood and body. And as such, they needed to be corrected. And Paul very sternly did so, didn't he? And so the abusage of one or more of these acts of worship is as old as the New Testament itself. But may we submit that even to this day, the same kinds of questions arise. Things in which individuals ask, may we in worship do this? May we do that? May we alter what this commandment is and thus fulfill it in a different way? Is it possible again to go too far in worship? As you'll notice directly following that, let's be a bit more specific. To this point, I have used statements like alter or modify or rearrange. But let's now again be much more specific. In fact, near the bottom of this slide, it is certainly the case, easily seen in the writings and in the presentations of some of our day, that there are not a small number of people who have a rather notable disdain for traditional worship, as it might be called. The worship that involves these five acts and does so in the way that historically and traditionally the church of Christ has done it. They simply have no interest. They even have a disdain for this. So much so that some of these things now seemingly have become to be common. Have you noticed in various and sundry churches of Christ even, in which the larger ones have more than one worship service on a Sunday, one of them is often called a traditional worship service, whereas the other one is called a contemporary worship service. Interestingly, they are called by different names, different adjectives. What's different between these worship services that allows one to be called traditional, the other to be referenced as contemporary? Perhaps some description might be in order. Most of the time, those traditional services will have recognized hymns like those you and I have sung this morning. And the service will participate and will proceed in an orderly and in a well-arranged manner. Furthermore, a sermon will be delivered, an exposition of some portion of the Word of God. Furthermore, there will be an appreciation of respectfulness as it relates to not only the way the service is carried out, but the manner in which individuals conduct themselves in that service. But that does lead us, however, to note this. What is to be said about that contemporary service? Well, first of all, a definition for the word contemporary might be a wise matter. Here is the def dictionary's definition of the word contemporary. It literally means happening during the same period or marked by characteristics of the present. In other words, a contemporary worship service is one that follows and is directed by the desire of the present. The present culture... The present way that things in the world are proceeding, that is a worship service, apparently by its name, that chooses to pursue a course and methodology, a way, if you will, that in fact answers to the present. Now with that said, let's look at some of the things that typically take place in these contemporary worship services. There is an exceedingly strong emphasis upon spontaneity. There is a lack of orderliness. 
There is a lack of regularity in terms of a procession through an orderly arrangement. Things are done spontaneously. Quite often the song leader will in fact ask for selections and that will be what is sung on the spur of the moment. Furthermore, you'll notice that what one listens to is not a sermon. It's called a message. Furthermore, you'll appreciate that there is an exceeding emphasis upon an upbeat character. Songs are not slow. They are always such that there is upbeat nature in them. And furthermore, one never sings songs or makes mention of thoughts that bring guilt, that bring sadness, that bring a note of personal judgment and responsibility. And furthermore, in light of all of that, you'll notice that the four key words for any contemporary service are these. The atmosphere must be relaxed. People must not feel as if they are in fact being demanded by God or anyone else to do something. It needs to have a relaxed nature. And furthermore, that relaxed character must manifest itself in informality. No one needs to be dressing up. No one needs to, in fact, adorn themselves in such a way as if they are presenting themselves to the God of this universe. It needs to be informal. Dress casually. Get up and wear your pajamas if you want to. In the third place, it must ever be relevant and interesting so that one will not hear sermons like, What is the nature of biblical authorization? One is not likely to hear a message on the character of sin and the way in which it forces one in a position of separation from God. What one will hear is a sermon entitled, How to be more energized through your week. How to be a better person in terms of being a father or a mother. How do you go about being a better employee or an employer? What kind of mindset should one have in essence as it relates to honesty? It is certainly not to say that the Bible doesn't address all of those points because it does. But to use those as a how-to manual for a lesson and to not set forth the Word with all the character of rebuke and power behind it is to leave behind some of the most pressing things found in the Word of God. And yet these contemporary services are becoming more and more common. In fact, notice some of the other things about them. In the denominational world, these contemporary services are far more likened unto a trip to Disney World or to a trip to the local cinema theater than they are to what you'd call a worship service. Quite often the lights are dimmed as the Lord's Supper is served. Quite often there is an attitude and an aura that proceeds to respect a degree of excitement as you would perhaps appreciate watching a movie far more so than it would be a worship service to the Lord. Furthermore, you'll notice that in an effort to keep the service in a way that is exciting to those present, various individuals occupy positions and roles to ensure that this occurs. So there's a person designated as the worship leader. And there are even congregations in which one of the ministers is called a worship minister. His or her job is to orchestrate and identify the orderliness of that worship, whatever orderliness there may be, so that those that are there are ever excited and upbeat and they are emotionally engaged in what is taking place. 
For that reason, the music plays a vital role in that kind of worship. Thus, you find individuals who occupy a praise team or a praise group, a certain set of individuals who, in fact, it is their job and duty to ensure that the music, thus, whatever music is used is, again, an upbeat with a very fast tempo more often than not. You can well appreciate that quite often the songs that are used are not songs out of a book like we use. Quite often, contemporary gospel songs that are the latest hits on the gospel charts may find their place into a worship service like this. It is to be noted in terms of all of that, that this special music, this extra music, if you please, manifests itself in other ways. One sees that there are pep talks. Furthermore, there are plays and skits and dramas that are used and utilized as a part of the worship to enhance the experience so that the participants are able to leave with an emotional appreciation that they have worshipped. It is in light of all of that that it's certainly fair to say that the movements, even in this area, are well worthy of our attention. May I submit to you the denominational world has given into this decades ago, but the Church of Christ seems to not be far behind. Having, of course, recently begun working in Nashville, there are dozens and dozens of churches in the Nashville area. And I have had the disprivilege of hearing conversations there on the Lipscomb campus by certain ones who participate in services at these places. And let us not forget, they are churches of Christ in name. They have these contemporary services. They participate in them. And rather than coming together, say, for a Sunday evening or Wednesday evening, they allow their members to meet in these care groups where they meet in houses. They participate in small group arrangements in that fashion. May I submit to you that as all of that takes place, consider the community church movement. Roughly 30 years ago, this particular movement in a way had its beginning and it has accelerated ever since. There are those in our world, in our country, who are not only strong proponents of this, but they have taken over churches of Christ. Think of what happened at the Madison Church of Christ not many years ago. Maybe you and I can remember a time when Ira North preached there and on Sunday morning there was a program on the television. It was the Amazing Grace Bible Hour. Look at what status the Madison congregation is in now. To say it's in disarray is an understatement. The community church movement by and large destroyed that church as it was once known. Could it happen in Cookville? It certainly could. Has it already begun to make inroads in places? There is no doubt. Could it happen at Pippin? If we let it, it could. The matter before us is, is it possible to go too far in worship? Is it possible? Though one may be earnest, excited, sincere, and with a degree to only praise and honor God, is it possible to go too far in worship? As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that is our question. And perhaps it's time to revisit that text in 1 Kings 12. If you still have that marked, I would encourage you to revisit it and read it with me. As we do that though, perhaps this opening statement is something we should keep in mind. 
we have the absolute requirement as it relates to worship of the following set of ideas. In Colossians 3.17, the inspired writer pointed out, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. And it is perhaps at this point that it should be significant for us to lay some attention on that word traditional. You may notice that I used that word before in a way that appeared to be a good way. Now let's give some thought to what does it mean to use tradition as it comes to worship. For instance, here, you and I, at Pippin, we have two songs, a prayer, one more song in the lesson. Can we alter that, modify that sequence in some way? We traditionally do it the way that perhaps it's been done for decades. Tradition, you see, isn't always a bad thing. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul expressly told the Thessalonian church, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions that ye have received. They were told thus to not only recognize those traditions, but to hold fast to them. And these were traditions that Paul wrote had been received by epistle or by Paul's teaching. So you and I can appreciate that with a tradition grounded firmly in the revelation of truth and presented by virtue of that truth, that is a good tradition. There would be no reason to alter or change or modify it. Amazingly, it's those kinds of traditions that are wholesome and good. But when you and I bring a human tradition and try to substitute it in for God's declaration or in fact God's revelation, that is when a human tradition has become wrong. In fact, give some thought then to this scene from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, we remember this rather interesting set of events. Solomon, that third king of Israel, was reaching the point of the end of his life. And his successor was his son, Rehoboam. As Rehoboam ascended the throne, we might well take note of this. Things weren't always rosy and sweet while Solomon reigned as king. He taxed the people heavily, and no one likes exorbitant taxes. But he taxed them so much so that they became a bit disenfranchised with him. They became a bit bothered by the way in which he directed the kingdom. When Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne, thus he had a decision to make. And so one of his first acts was to try and see what was the difficulty with the people's perception. As he did that, he took counsel first from the older, from the older men. And they counseled him, This is a people that will follow you diligently. They will in fact be faithful, diligent, and loyal to you if... You will listen to their pleas, and if you will judge them appropriately and be their king with an understanding of listening to their perspective. Solomon, however, also looked, took counsel from the young men. Those were he who were his cohorts and his associates. Their advice was this, you need to be a heavy-handed king, and just as surely as your father was a heavy taxation man, you need to even do more than that. You need to make the kingdom even more wealthy as it relates to your position and your palace. Rehoboam chose to follow the younger men's advice. 
And thus, when the people came to him, he said, If you thought that my daddy was going to be hard on you, you hadn't seen anything yet. The people were thus greatly displeased, and the kingdom was split. Ten of the tribes revolted. They rebelled against him, and they would not follow Rehoboam. They chose a different man as their king, and his name was Jeroboam. We have in 1 Kings chapter 12 one of the first decisions that Jeroboam made when he became king of Israel. Notice again what was read for us in our hearing just a moment ago by Adam. Beginning in 1 Kings 12 verse 26, the text tells us, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem... Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam, we must realize, had the savvy about him to make this conclusion. He knew that God had commanded the people were to go to the temple and worship. He knew the people had commanded that only there where that Ark of the Covenant was, was the place where worship was to take place. And hence, he knew that was no longer now in his territory. That was in Judah, not in Israel. And thus, if the people of my kingdom always have to go back to Jerusalem, to Rehoboam's kingdom to worship, they will come to appreciate that what I have done is incorrect and wrong, and they will kill me. Next verse. Whereupon, verse 28 the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he put one in Bethel and one in Dan. And so Jeroboam had this supposedly brilliant idea. Oh, it's too inconvenient for you to go back to Jerusalem to worship. That's too far. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a golden calf, one in Bethel and one in Dan, that is, at the two extremities of the kingdom. You won't have to travel so far. Furthermore, don't forget, these gods are the ones that brought you out of Egypt. You should feel comfortable, happy, and excited to worship them. Here at Bethel and at Dan, you will find this worship that's acceptable. We noticed Jeroboam changed some things, didn't he? Did he not change some things? In fact, notice a few of the things he changed. We immediately appreciate the fact in terms of what he changed. He first of all changed the place. Whereas the temple was at Jerusalem, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the other features of both the holy and most holy places were located. Jeroboam changed that. You worship at Dan and at Bethel. Nextly, he took the liberty of changing the method of worship. God had said no graven images. He fashioned two golden calves, placed one at Dan, one at Bethel. This will suffice, he claimed. Those two changes were not sufficient. He also changed the object of worship. Before, you'll notice that it was solely and singularly directed to an exaltation of God by His command and word. Jeroboam made no reference to God. Did you notice Jehovah's not mentioned? Rather, it's these gods of Egypt. Fourthly, as if all that isn't enough, he changed the priesthood. 
Whereas God had decreed the priest had to be of the tribe of Levi. Jeroboam said, that's not necessarily true. And he anointed priests of all kinds of the tribes. Fifthly, and lastly, he changed the time. You remember that God commanded the Passover as well as the other feasts to be kept at respective times. Jeroboam took the liberty of going all the way to the eighth month of the year and said, let's have a feast now. Jeroboam changed a lot of things. The method, the object, the priest, the time, even the place. It seems as if these matters are all light in the mind of some. Doesn't it though hearken us back to the lesson we've been considering? Contemporary worship and what some are in our very mindset today choosing to change. Let us now ask, how did the Lord react to Jeroboam's changes? Was God happy with these changes? Did He in fact applaud them and decree that they have heaven's approval? Let's read verse 30 one more time. Closing verse in the passage we read earlier. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. This thing became a sin. Question, was God happy with these changes? Was He satisfied with what Jeroboam had done? Was He pleased with the fact then that the people were now doing a number of things differently than what they had done in days past? If you and I would wish to call the worship prior to this traditional and the worship at this time contemporary, we can easily appreciate God wasn't happy with the contemporary worship. He nonetheless was very satisfied with that traditional worship because that's what He had commanded at Sinai. That's what had been developed in days gone by, and that is what He had been pleased with in earlier days. As you and I give thought then to what is before us today, may I submit to you Jeroboam went too far in worship. Is it possible to go too far in worship? The answer is yes, because Jeroboam did. Let's in fact use that to draw some lessons for us during the last segment of our time this morning. Possible to go too far in worship today? These are some lessons that the New Testament teaches us as it relates to our worship. You might remember earlier we had noted that sometimes one appreciates a spontaneity a disorderliness, if you will, with respect to worship. The New Testament sets before us that it is the will and plan of God that worship be carried out orderly. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, God is not the author of confusion. And on that occasion, Paul reprimanded the church in Corinth because some of what was going on, despite the fact that they were blessed with spiritual gifts, miraculous ones like speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, the character of interpreting tongues. You and I can imagine that it would be possible for that to be a confused mess. One person speaking in one tongue, another one speaking in a different tongue. If all of that were to go on, it would be possible for it to be confusion. Paul said, worship must be done orderly. One needs to speak at a time. And then if there's interpretation, that person needs to give it. You'll notice the very last verse of the chapter, let all things be done decently and in order. Our worship today, if it is to be God-honoring worship, and scriptural in its basis must be done in an orderly way. Furthermore, 
we appreciate it must be done solely in truth. When we well remember that truth is that which God has revealed, John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. And we well remember that Jesus Himself affirmed, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. We know that worship that's done in truth must follow this pattern exclusively and solely. We are not allowed to add anything to it. Thus, we see that the criticality of that point leads us to appreciate that it must be done in spirit. There's no question that so many of those today who have a desire to enjoy a contemporary worship with a rock band, with any number of other things, their heart may well be in a position of wanting some excitement. But may we say, all of us should be excited about worship. It should be a highlight point to come together to praise, exalt, magnify, and honor the name of God and to do so as He has told us. But you'll notice that that excitement does not come from an external thing like a band, a piano, a guitar, a banjo. It doesn't come from dancing down the aisle and turning cartwheels here in front. It doesn't come from that. It comes from within as the heart is excited to magnify and honor God. Furthermore, you'll notice, worship as it's described everywhere in the New Testament is not emotionally based. That is to say, worship is not orchestrated to excite the emotion. Emotions are excited when your heart is in it. If you and I leave today, having been unexcited to be here, it's not God's fault. And it's not the Bible's fault. It's my fault or yours because our heart wasn't prepared to worship in spirit and in truth. It's because we left with an empty bucket because our bucket had a hole in it. It's not because things weren't put in it, but we didn't have the mentality to fill the hole and to allow our bucket to fill up with praise to God. All of that perhaps leads us to notice worship is not designed for our entertainment. And thus to liken it to going to Walt Disney World or to go into a movie theater is a very insult to the God of heaven. It's a blasphemy. Paul himself affirmed in Galatians 1.10, If I seek to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If you and I are orchestrating worship just so, that the crowds will be large as they move and sway to the music that's played. We haven't worshipped. That worship is as vain as the Lord declared in Matthew 15, 9. Our worship must be done in truth and in spirit. And furthermore, there is a need today for each and every one of us, our elders especially, but all of us to appreciate the need for great vigilance because the movement is before us. This community church movement is all around us. It won't be long before it will be well noted in Cookville. In fact, there are already community churches in Putnam County. And it won't be long before what is now in Nashville in terms of contemporary worship will find its way to Cookville. It's just a matter of time. May we be vigilant, earnest, and ever on guard to worship not in a traditional way because that's what we like, but because this traditional way related to the traditions of the Bible. That's the only tradition that matters. And when we do those five things in worship that God has commanded, we can leave excited and appreciative of the fact that we have honored God. And we ourselves have been edified 
and we are able to go about the business of our day and our life appreciative of who we have exalted on that occasion. As we give thought to what worship involves and some of the things that it doesn't, this concluding slide is my attempt to summarize some of what we have learned today. There are change agents, and they are active, and they are alive and well. Their movements are exceedingly noticeable. And again, may we at Pippin, and may our other churches in this area, be ever steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Today, rather than giving attention to what's contemporary from human standpoint, may we give attention to what God has declared. And if you aren't a Christian today, don't you want to be able to worship in truth and in spirit? God has told us in His book how that can happen. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, following the pattern told to us in Acts 16.30. Furthermore, you need to repent of your sins, for that repentance is commanded in Acts 2, verse 38. You also need to confess in a verbal way the Jesus as the Son of God, told to us in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And then you need to be baptized for the remission of sins, set forth for us not only in 1 Peter 3, 21, but also in Acts 2, 38. Upon so doing, live faithfully until death, worshiping as God has commanded, and that will, in fact, be a high point in your week and in your life. If you, however, have strayed from the pathway of rightness, come back today to that first love. The arms of God are open wide, inviting you to appreciate your current placement and to come back to Him. If we could pray on your behalf, we would enjoy the privilege of doing so and what a change it would be for you. If we could help you today in either of these ways, why not let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.